Well, I thank you for joining us here on Thursday nights at Calvary Chapel South Bay. I want to welcome our online audience as well, listening all over the world, actually. So if you're joining us online, we're delighted you're here with us as well. I want to give you a little heads up. Tonight's message will be a little bit on the PGPG 13 side at times. And so we've actually invited the junior high and the high school to be in here because it's a subject matter uh, that our kids ultimately are being taught usually now between about 9 and 11 years old in public school. And that to me is both shocking and expected. The day and the time that we live in, the last days, as we approach the time of the Lord's return, Scripture is quite clear that there will be a great falling away, that that which is evil will be called good, and that which is good will be called evil. And I want to take a little bit of time, because this is a two-part message, and set really the, the guidelines for the whole of what will follow in these next two studies. Let me make it absolutely clear The grace of God is able to save to the uttermost, to all who will repent and receive and believe. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And if you're here tonight, and if you came through the doors, and before you got here, You were engaged in the most despicable and vile sinful acts. I'm here to tell you right now, before we start, God's grace is sufficient for you. That is always the message of the Bible. The whole Bible is the story of redemption. God reaching out to sinful mankind with a heart of love, with the intent to restore that which is broken, the relationship that we have with God that is broken by our sin. And so I want to ask you to listen with those ears, not with presupposition, but listen with understanding. And I pray that the Lord will speak to us in a fresh way because we are being assaulted in our culture with lie after lie after lie after lie that God has somehow made a mistake that his word to his people 2,000 years ago about his character, his nature, and what he accepts and what he does not has somehow changed. That we are so much more infinitely intelligent and wise that we need to rethink how we think about and what we do with what God has clearly said in his word. And so it is there that we'll go, and it is there that I pray that not only will we see the justice of God, the holiness of God, the severity of God, but most importantly, the grace of God. Because truly his grace is greater than all of my sin. Would you pray with me? 
Father, tonight, as we come to a very difficult passage, or a passage that probably even some in this room would wish that I would skip, but we can't and we won't, because it's your word. And your word, your truth, sets men free, sets women free, sets humankind free from the bondage of sin. It's penalty, death, and ultimately separation from you. And so we pray tonight that your word would speak to us with power, with majesty, with clarity, with grace, with kindness and love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take just a handful of verses tonight, 1 Corinthians 6. We'll pick up in verses 8 through 11. And this passage which is often, I believe, misinterpreted, brings to us some very, very, very difficult questions. Because it says point blank, unashamedly, that there are certain things that you cannot do, cannot be, cannot live in, And inherit the kingdom of God. And so immediately we being humans jump to about every extreme that we possibly can. And we're going to cover those five extremes. One of which is actually the truth. Because it's the extreme of grace. But before we begin 2 Corinthians chapter 13 which we'll cover when we get to 2 Corinthians. But it says something very important for you. If you're here tonight and you love the Lord, you know the Lord, you're a believer, Jesus Christ is your Lord tonight. You can honestly say that there's no other master save Christ in your life. To you, Scripture is clear. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Look at your own life. Test your own place in God's kingdom It says, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you were disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. You see, Scripture actually does give us some hints about who's in and who's out. And I want to begin with a major caveat. Ultimately, it is not my job. It is not your job. Nor will you be asked to give your opinion when we all get to heaven as to who should be in or who should be out. That final judgment rests on Christ alone. Faith in him alone. Salvation by grace and through faith alone is the only way that anyone will ever get into heaven. But we do have some guidelines as to what God expects the life of believers to actually be while we're here on this earth. How we ought to conduct ourselves. And it is to that end that some questions, some very, very thorny questions arise about our assurance of our salvation. And when I say assurance, I simply mean, do we know? Do you know? Do I know? Can we know? 
Are we supposed to know? And from our passage that we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we are supposed to know. We're supposed to look, we're supposed to check, we're supposed to see. You see, here's where it goes. Sin in the life of a believer is absolutely not okay. It's not okay with God, and it should not be okay with us. And if it is, when you examine yourself, you should go, ooh, that's not good. Not, hey, God, you better change your mind because I like this. God, you better rethink that because we've come a long way, baby. We're not the same type of people on this earth that we used to be 2,000 years ago. We have gotten very far ahead. And so now we're going to tell you what you should accept because we actually know better than you do. That is what the world is trying to do on a bunch of different fronts. And in all fairness tonight, I'm going to pick on a particular subject because it's in the forefront of our existence on this earth. It's in the forefront of our news. It is in the forefront of our politics. And that is the issue of homosexuality. And so we'll spend a majority of our time. Is there a salvation test? Can you get drunk every day and expect to see the heavenly kingdom of God? Can you do whatever you want? Can you keep the Lord Jesus and your sin? Oh, that's a thorny question, isn't it? Can you just do whatever you want? You see, here's the real problem. We've been bought and paid for with a price. We actually don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to the Lord who paid the price for us. And as Christians, our lives are no longer our own. Where does Christ's control end in your life? Or does it end? Should it end? You see, these are deep questions. They're thorny questions. They're questions that pierce the heart and prick the mind. Is there such a thing as a Christian homosexual. Someone who is a believer and someone who is an unashamed, unabashed, proud, rainbow flag-waving homosexual. That's a thorny question. If you ask that in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, you'll say, they'll say, oh yes. If you ask that in the Presbyterian Church USA, they will say, yes, you can be a homosexual and be a Christian. If you ask that in the Episcopal Church in America, they will also say, yes, you can absolutely be a homosexual and be a Christian. We're going to look at our Bibles tonight and see if that is so. You see, these are difficult questions because they affect the very lives that we live on this earth. Does sin actually matter? 
You see, there are some that take it so far. Oh, well, does it really matter? I mean, God's grace is a free gift. If I'm saved by grace, can't I just do what I want? Anything else must be work. Is that what our Bible teaches? God alone will be the final judge. But he's not so unkind. He is absolutely not a deceiver. He absolutely has given us sufficient evidence so that we can live our lives in a way that is pleasing to him. And so the passage that's before us brings us to that place. Verse 8. Remember we just finished with the issue of believers suing one another. Very clear that that's not God's plan. That it should be excruciatingly rare and only after every other measure has been exhausted. And now verse 8. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. Remember that the Apostle Paul is writing here to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the church at Corinth, a church that is a church that's trying to be right side up in an upside down world. A church that, li- that existed in a place that, from every measure, was sin city. If it had a sign outside of town, it said, "I'm now entering Carnalville." This is a tough place to be a believer. We live in a tough place to be believers. Amen? I don't know about where you live. I can tell you where I live. It's a tough place to be a believer. Turn on the television. You know, I'm, I'm voting bring back Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Because I ain't liking what I'm seeing. It's a tough place to be a believer. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So he's not letting anybody off the hook as he continues here. He's not excusing. He's not setting aside. He's not telling the Corinthians, well, I'm glad you guys are holy and perfect. He's confronting their sin. He's saying, you guys got some issues. And so he now begins, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now here's the good news. The way that you become righteous is not by works. It isn't by what you do. It's by receiving the grace gift. But you have to receive it. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says this, Be ye therefore transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing or the making new of your mind. So believers are washed up, has been Sinners who used to feel good about their sin, who now feel bad about their sin, and have accepted the grace of God, 
so that we no longer walk in the sin we used to walk in. We're actually ashamed of the sin that we used to walk in. And so we are now righteous, not because of what we do, but because in whom we have believed, and he is able to keep that which he has committed unto the day of Christ Jesus. But my life has changed. And the way I live my life is not how I used to live my life. And the things which I used to do, I am now very ashamed if even thought of those things come into my mind. You see, my mind has been transformed. It is in the constant state of renewal. I am being sanctified. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, underline it. Do not be deceived. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now he's going to describe who the unrighteous are, and he's going to use five sexual sins. Neither fornicators. I think most of us in this room, if someone comes up to you and they profess to be a Christian, they say, you know, but I just really like sleeping with anybody I can. Probably most of you in here are going to go, hey, bro, you can't do that. That's not okay with God. I I would venture a guess that there's probably not a single person in this room who would rationally speak those words as a believer. You'd go, no, fornication's not okay with God. Now, I want you to see something. The values here are all separated by commas. It's not as if God, writing through the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, said, you know, well, this one is a one, and this one's a five, and this one's an eight, and oh, this one down here at the end of the list, woo, ten. Amen? So be real careful as you read this. Fornicators idolaters. That is someone who's involved in ritual prostitution. Because that was the situation in Corinth. The word that's used here is to describe someone who worked in the temple of Aphrodite, one of the over 1,000 prostitutes who plied their trade in the temple of Aphrodite as an act of worship to the goddess Aphrodite. You see, when you look at idolater in its context, it's like, ooh, um, no, we don't do that at our church. Amen? So you would say, no, we don't do that. Mm -mm -mm -mm. You can't do that and claim to be a Christian. You can see where I'm going with this. Nor adulterers. I can tell you what you won't hear. If you come in for counseling here at Calvary Chapel South Bay and you ask to speak to one of the pastors and you come in and you say, you know, I'm just sick and tired of my wife and I'm sleeping with whoever I want. We're going to tell you, and you're going to be sleeping with Satan when you die. (laughs) Because we're going to look you right in the eye and go, you cannot be an adulterer and expect to see the kingdom of God. It's incompatible with your new nature in Christ. It is not okay with God. And because it's not okay with God, it's not okay with us because we are righteous in him. 
You understand what I'm saying? Super important you follow the train of the logic that is being laid out here for you in Scripture. Because, see, what happens is the church begins to waffle on these things. Well, you know, your husband is a jerk. I talk to him. I'm not surprised that you no longer want to be faithful in marriage. Can I tell you, I've had people come from other churches and tell me that's the counsel they got from their other church. Not once, not twice, dozens of times. And they'll usually say something like this. Well, God wants you to be happy. If anyone knows where that verse is, can you find it for me? It's not in there. Does he want you to have joy? Oh, yes, he does. But that joy is going to be because of him. And it's going to be in him. And it's going to be completed in him. And what's going to happen is you are going to change to think like he does. He is not going to change to think like you do. Nor homosexuals. Now, what did we just say? You're not going to excuse the fornicator. You're not going to excuse the temple prostitute. You're not going to excuse the adulterer nor homosexuals. And in case you didn't get it, sodomites, which is a male homosexual. You see, but we're being told by our culture, well, we need to rethink this. We're being told by multiple denominations with millions of adherents in them that we need to change the way we think about this. Really? So are we also going to change the way we think about fornication? Because it's separated by commas. It isn't one's worse than the other. They're all not okay with God. You see, God actually helps us understand what he's getting at here by what now follows. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. He, he tones it down. He moves away from things that realistically ought to be pretty simple for us to understand. But you know, I'm a fornicator that really, I like the person I'm fornicating with a lot. You know, that money that was in the bank, do you know how much I've been cheated on my taxes? It's mine. If you had worked for my employer, you would have extorted money from them too. The wheels begin to turn, don't they? You see, here's our problem. The moment you move on one, you're forced to move on all. If you accept one, you have to accept all. And pretty soon, you are the one that determines what is sin and what is not. And I'm here to tell you that if that's what you think, 
then no one is saved. Because the same Bible that says these things says that the only way anyone sees heaven is through the one way, the one truth, the one life. The one who is the resurrection and the life, the one in whom we believe by grace and through faith. You see, if you don't believe what 1 Corinthians 6 says, why do you believe what John 3.16 says? You can't just go through your Bible and pick and choose the things that you don't want to believe simply because you don't like the conclusion you have to come to. And I'm being very careful about setting the stage here. So please bear with me because it's important to understand the proper interpretation of this passage. Just in case you missed it the first time, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's the fullness of all that is promised to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is all promises that were made in the past that are applicable to us, all the present promises of God, which is joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit applied in your life, the things that you are and should be because you're a child of God, freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. It's those things and eternal life. And one day, glorification and literally inheriting the actual kingdom of the Lord, including ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus on this earth for a thousand years. You see, the kingdom of God is the totality of the package. What Paul is saying, and he says it twice, if you are consistently engaged in these things, unashamedly, unabashedly, if you're doing these things and you do not think they're wrong, you have a problem, and oh, by the way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see what I'm saying by who's in, who's out? I'm not telling you you're not. Scripture is saying you better examine yourself because you have a problem with what God says about who you should be if you actually are a child of God. This is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture that exists in your entire Bible for telling people, look, I love you. I'm with you, and I'm a sinner too. I've messed up in my life so many times, but here's what happens when I mess up. I go, dear Jesus, because your word says, if I will confess my sin, you are faithful and just to forgive my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But nowhere in your Bible does it say you can sin with impunity that you can just keep doing whatever you want to do. It doesn't say that. It says exactly the opposite of that, that we are now new creations in Christ. Behold, the old things are passing away, and all things, every last single thing in your life is becoming present tense, imperfect. In other words, it's an act that's ongoing, becoming new. The old you is passing away, the new you is shining brighter every day. Hallelujah. That's what's happening. But if there's no beginning to that, because there's no repentance, there's no turning, there's never been a point in time when you said, yes, Lord, I agree with you. I was wrong, and I'm going to turn away, and as imperfectly as you may turn away. And let me be really careful here. 
We are not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about sinning less and becoming more perfect. Huge difference between those two things. Because I can sin less every day. My goal is one day to be completely perfect. And what will happen is if I keep at this, one day I'm going to go home to be with the Lord. And it's actually going to happen. One day you're going to actually bump into perfect, Jeff. It's not this week. <laughs> but it will happen. It's a process. It's called sanctification. There are five basic ways to look at this passage. And the reason I'm saying this, and by the way, this also applies to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. So jot those down, look at them later, for sake of time. You see, the hyper-legalist, the person who looks at this, and they take it the most extreme legalistic way, it's like, oh boy, we have got a holiness club right here in this house. And if you ever, once you have said yes to Jesus, ever do anything like any of these things, plus all of the rest of the things, plus you got a lousy attitude. Now remind yourself, please, that Scripture says bitterness is a sin. Injustice is a sin. Matter of fact, in its most extreme, that anything that is not of faith is sin. Oh my goodness. There's a lot of things in my life that are not sin. And when I think about them, I'm going, Lord, would you please put me in line with a child of God and how I ought to think about this from a position of faith. You see, so there's not a person in here, including me, that is actually practically sinless. But the hyper-legalist says, you are saved by works, you are kept by works, and the only way that you're going to heaven is by the work of being perfect. I'm a dead man. Just saying. I'm going to be driving down the road, somebody's going to cut me off, and I'm thinking something I'm not supposed to think. Just, I, I'm just being honest. And probably most of you would fall in that category as well. I don't know about you. I don't like being scared. So when someone comes three lanes across and they cut in front of me, I'm not thinking, praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm thinking, where's the CHP when you need them? Break their teeth out of their mouth and bind and grind their bones into dust, O Lord of hosts. You know. There's no grace. There's no, it's not like I don't, you know, it's, that's the way it goes. The second way to look at this, so basically you have conditional election. Conditional salvation. It's conditioned on your performance. The Bible clearly says that's not true. The second way you can look at it is God must have different standards for his children of grace than he does for people who are unsaved. And so saved people are just completely lost. And they're going to keep doing these things, but God just kind of turns a blind eye to me because I'm saved by grace. He's basically just referring to unsaved people here. He's not talking. And yet this letter was written to saved people. A third way you look at this, and this is what we would call the antinomian view, 
anti, meaning against, nomos, meaning the law, that there is no law, or we're basically against any and all laws, that there aren't any that still apply to us, which, by the way, is a heresy. That grace is tawdry, it is cheap. Jesus basically died so that we could keep on doing whatever we want to do. I'm pretty sure my Bible doesn't support that. A fourth view is this view, which is very popular, which has been adopted by the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, Episcopal Church in America, the non-literal, humanist, existentialist view that man is the judge and not God. We don't like what it says. There's been some research done in the last few years And we talked to somebody's aunt who talked to somebody's uncle who talked to somebody who was one time one of these things, and they said, oh no, they're saved. So the humanist view says, God, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want, and you need to accept it. And then the fifth view is obviously the one that I think Scripture fully supports, and that is... We read it for what it says, we believe it for what it says, and we do what it says. The literal view that my previous condition was, I used to be a sinner. But now I am a saved sinner. And because I'm a saved sinner, I've put off the old man and all of his deeds. And I've become a new creation in Christ. And so the old things are passing away. I'm putting them away. I'm ashamed of them. I hate the fact that I even think about them. I would never intentionally just sit around and unabashedly, unashamedly do these things because they're part of what I was saved from. Now go back to how we started. The list is separated by commas. No one in here is going to support that there is such a thing as an unabashed, unashamed Christian mass murderer. No one is going to sit in here and go, you know, if you're a serial philanderer, you know, God created you that way. Go for it, brother. Amen? I hope not. You can't help yourself. So where are we today in our world? We are in exactly this place. The hyper-legalist says, well, you need to be sinless. But really, Scripture says, I need to be sinning less. And I need to care about it. It needs to bother me. I need to wake up in the morning and go, Lord, in Jesus' name, help me when I'm on the freeway. I can't drive with my eyes closed so you're going to need to steer, okay? You see, I, I just, that's one of my prayers. I get on the freeway and I'm like, Lord, I want to be really kind. I don't want to think anything. But I do that consistently. And you know what? I've gotten better. It's taken 50 years, but I'm getting, I'm sinning less. I'm using myself as an example, and I'm sure that there's not a person in this room that can't find something in your life to where you go, you know what? I used to do that, and I was not ashamed of it. I used to do that. I used to be like that, and I used to actually kind of brag about it. 
Anybody in that club? Used to brag about your sin? Raise your hands, you liars. You did. Oh, man, you should see me at the party last night. See? Let's get into this thing right now, right here. We're in his house. We can talk as brothers and sisters in the Lord. If we're honest, you see what happens is now I go back to this list. Go, you know what? I'm not supposed to be a thief. I'm not supposed to be an extortioner. That says homosexual. So can I actually look at someone who is a professed homosexual who will not repent and say, you know what? God made you that way. Can you? If you believe that, then you are in that fourth area that we talked about of interpretation of being a secular humanist who's telling God what his standards are. And if God has ever in the course of all of mankind's sojourn on earth changed his opinion about a single moral issue, he is no longer fair and just. Did you hear what I said? If God has ever in the course of mankind's sojourn on the face of this earth changed his position on a single moral issue, he is no longer just. It means he punished somebody previously, like Sodom and Gomorrah. And now somehow... We've evolved, and it's okay. You see where I'm going? You must, as a believer, use your mind. You think with your mind. You believe by faith, but God gave you a brain. Put that two and a half pounds of gray matter inside of your cranial cavity so that you could actually use it. Think about it for a second. You see, not one of us is sinless, but not one of us gets to keep our sin either. You don't get to keep your bitterness. You can't stay a male prostitute. You don't get to keep your drunkenness. You can't stay a homosexual. You do not get to stay an extortioner, and you cannot be a practicing fornicator and expect to see the kingdom of God. I am not judging you. I'm telling you, the Bible says, thus says the Lord, you don't get to do that. And it says the result is you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You, you can't make this passage say something that you, don't, that you want it to say because you don't like what it does say. So this one example, and the reason I'm going to use this, how many of you in here have heard that homosexual, homosexual people were born that way? Please be honest and raise your hand. Probably all of us. How many people have heard that some version of homosexuality is genetic? Raise your hand. You realize that pretty much every person in this room raised their hand either to one of both of those two things. If what I just said is true, hear me well, I'm not saying it is, then God's a liar and we should all go home. Because that means he created somebody who is 
absolutely incapable of not turning away from something that he says will keep them from the kingdom of God. Do you understand what I just said? God all of a sudden just became unjust and unfair. So is there any truth to those statements? You see, because we're being told that that is true. Is that true? And that's going to be the focus of a little bit of our time. We are facing a bill right now. It's in committee in the state capitol. We passed in 2012 a law here in the state of California that prohibits people like me from talking to a minor about rejecting homosexuality and becoming a heterosexual. Even if my only source is prayer in the Bible as a pastor. It is actually illegal and has been illegal. It's not being enforced in churches, but if you're a psychologist and you're here, you're a psychiatrist and you're here, you know exactly what I'm saying is true. You cannot take someone into your office and try and convert them by the usage of the Bible, prayer, or any other means to change from being a homosexual to a heterosexual. It is illegal in the state of California. The bill that's before our state assembly right now is a tag to that bill, which increases the scope of it, which will make it two parts, will make it illegal for me, ultimately, that's where they want to go, to actually sit down and tell somebody what I just read to you from the Bible. It may well make the Bible itself actually illegal. There's some debate right now, and I'm going to tell you there is some debate right now as to whether it would go that far, but it certainly is one of the outcomes because if I sell this in Walmart, not a church, and somebody reads it, they might get converted. It's about to become illegal. You see, we're being told that people were born that way. They cannot help themselves. And to continue to tell them that there is power in the name of Jesus, that they can be saved from a life of sin, and the penalty that will come if you don't turn, which is the same for everyone, by the way, the penalty for an unrepentant liar is you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The penalty for an unrepentant extortioner is you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here's the good news. You can repent. You can ask for forgiveness. And you can even stumble. It may not look perfect. But your heart is before the Lord. God, I desperately want to change. And maybe you're not real good at changing right away. Because I know an awful lot of people that are lousy on the change side. But when you talk to them, they're not looking at you going, you know what? I'm just so thankful that God made me an extortioner. I've yet to have that happen. I've not had a single person come into my office, look me in the eye and say, you know what? God made me a murderer. 
I haven't had a single person come into my office and say, you know what, God made me a drunk. I've had a few people try and give me some type of genetic connection. And I said, I'm sorry, you better check your research because that is not only not true, exactly the opposite has been proven. And so what about homosexuality? Because we're being told that absolutely, from many people's perspective, that it is genetic. And I want to go on record here. National Association for Research and Therapy and Homosexuality. This study is about 11 years old. If you know anything about studies, it takes forever to compile the data and then to publish them. It takes an extremely long time. And so almost all genuine good studies that involve large study groups take a fairly significant amount of time. And so while this one was published 11 years ago, it was published by Dr. Francis S. Collins, who received the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his work on the Human Genome Project. So the person I'm about to quote to you verbatim and read to you is the foremost expert in the entire world in the study of the human genome. In other words, the analysis of human DNA. What is there inherently and what is not there inherently. Quoting in his book, Dr. Bird writes this about Dr. Collins. He says, one of the world's leading researchers is Dr. Collins. Quotes him and says this, there's an inescapable component of heritability to many human behavioral traits. And for virtually none of them is heredity ever close to definitively predictive. Did you hear what I just said? In almost none of them are they definitively predictive. In other words, if you have a certain set of genomic markers, does not almost ever make anything definitively predictive. He was then asked the question. Dr. Collins succinctly says this. After reviewing the research on homosexuality, an area of particularly strong public interest is the genetic basis of homosexuality. Evidence from twin studies does in fact support the conclusion that heritable factors play a role in male homosexuality. However, the likelihood that identical twin homosexual males will also be gay is about 20% compared to 2 to 4% of males in the general population, indicating that sexual orientation is genetically influenced, but it is not genetically hardwired by DNA. Genes involved represent only predispositions and not predeterminations. That is directly from the number one authority on the human genome. In other words, a predisposition. Let me give you a little secret here. Every man in this room is predisposed to lust. Say amen, men. We like girls. We do. We like to look at them. We like to touch them. We are genetically predisposed to like the feminine form and the feminine feel. So if that's the case, 
If predisposition means predetermination, then by that definition, every single man cannot help himself if he's a fornicator. And yet scripture says, mm, no, you can't do that either. There's a reason I'm giving you this train of logic. You must be honest. You must be intellectually honest with your condemnation of all things. If you're going to condemn one, you need to use the same basis for condemnation for everything else. What does God's word say about it? Doctor of psychiatry, Robert Spitzer, who was instrumental, by the way, in removing from the DRSM, that's the American Psychiatric Association's Bible on what is a, what is a psychological disorder and what is not, it was removed in 1973, the homosexuality. Until that point in time, it was considered a mental disease. He said in the archives of sexual behavior, After going through all of his research, Dr. Spitzer wrote this, because no single study can be regarded as definitive, more research needs to be done on how people overcome homosexuality. But a considerable body of previous literature about the change from homosexuality to heterosexuality has been compiled. You realize what he just said? He said, we've seen an awful lot of evidence that people who were previously homosexual have become not homosexual. The sheer number of exceptions to the born gay theory should be a warning to researchers and the media that to proceed with caution before declaring that science has proved that homosexuality is genetic. It is not. But we're still being told it is. It's being trotted around in the media. God's word says it isn't. Science says it is not genetic. Yale's Dr. Glowell Glertner. Many laymen now believe that homosexuality is a part of a person from the moment of conception. The genetic and unchangeable theory has been actively promoted by gay activists and popular in the media. Is homosexuality really inborn and a normal variant of human DNA? No, it is not. There is no evidence that shows that homosexuality is simply genetic. And none of the research claims that exist today prove that it is. Only the press and certain researchers, when speaking in sound bites to the public, without speaking about specifics or quoting any research, say that it is. In fact... I remember an article from Science Magazine entitled Time and Time Again. Scientists have claimed that particular genes or chromosomal regions that are associated with behavioral traits only to withdraw those findings once they have been further investigated. Unfortunately, it says, it's hard to come up with many or or any of the findings linking specific genes to complex human behaviors, and it is nearly impossible to replicate them. All were announced with great fanfare, greedily accepted, hardly even scrutinized, and all now are in disrepute. And I could go on for the next hour and a half quoting scientist after scientist, doctor after doctor, researcher after researcher, 
and you will get a handful of people who will pull a sidebar study with a hundred participants in it and say, we think this, and then trot it out to the news media, proof positive. We just had a thing happen today, life on Mars. Why? They found carbon. Woo! Carbon is the most common element in the entire universe. So finding some on Mars is not exactly big news. But to the lay person hearing, well, they found carbon. I made out of carbon. The same has happened for homosexuality. You have people saying, no, God's word is not true. Matter of fact, God's a liar. That's an inescapable conclusion of what we have studied tonight. You either have to believe that God is telling the truth and no one is born gay, or you have to believe that people are born gay and God's a liar. If you're reading from the same Bible I'm reading from, and by the way, it does not matter what version or what, what translation you have. Any of the standard English translations all say the same thing. Science overwhelmingly does not support an unjust God. It does not support that there's any such thing as a gay gene. So in that sense, God is not unjust. He is not unfair. That's why the Bible tells us in James chapter 1 there in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, when she is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. If God allows anyone to be born gay, then God tempted them. The Bible says he doesn't do that. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Look, the truth is, every person in this room has a problem with sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the story of the human race, by the way. That's your story and my story. Let me be very clear. That is Pastor Jeff's story. I'm a sinner. Praise God for his grace. I'm a saved sinner now. I'm going to heaven because of the grace of God. But I readily admit that I'm a sinner. And I desperately need a savior. And I will not sit there and tell you, well, you know, except in these three areas. You know, God just has to accept the fact that I am really an impatient driver. I won't tell you. I'll tell you straight up. I really shouldn't think the things I think sometimes. And I hate it sometimes. And other times I'm like, hmm, they really deserve it this time. <laughs> then I have to have extra grace. I cry out to the Lord. It's like, Lord, it, bug, it bugs me, even though that person probably, uh, in, in a grand scale of things, God's probably not overly concerned with whether I dislike somebody's driving or not, but it bothers me that I dislike their driving. It drives me crazy. It's like, okay. No, not another one, Lord. <laughs> I'm using myself as an example because there's every single one of you in this room probably has something in your life that you have struggled with, that you hate, that you still do, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is actually at work in your life. Here's why. 
you hate it. But if you sit around and you go, you know what, man, I am so proud of the way that I hate people. You know, I have never been more drunk than I was last night. Boy, that was great. I just cannot wait until we fornicate again. And I know God just is really, he's so excited for me. No, you don't think that way. As a child of God, you're like, oh, Lord. I caved into that temptation. I'm sorry, God. You see, when you start reading through the American Journal of Public Health, when you go to the, go to the CDC's website, if you want your eyes open, go to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta and look at the statistics on what happens when a homosexual lifestyle is lived out in a general sense. And let me be really clear. There are all kinds of people who profess to be homosexual, profess to be gay or lesbian, and we need to love them with the love of Jesus, by the way. Absolutely, without question. Love them into the kingdom. But it is mostly bad. Most of the information points towards severely disordered lives. They are not all the Ellen DeGeneres who looks pretty normal most of the time. Who acts fairly normal. Who seems to really care about her partner. Let me be honest, I think she does. I think she actually cares. And probably in her way, she believes there's love there. But were I to meet her, Ellen, can I call you that? Would that be okay? Let me share with you from my heart. Because I used to be a drunk. And I used to not care. But the power of God in my life has changed my life. And he set me free from what I used to be. And he wants to change your life. Your dad, Ellen, was a pastor. Katy Perry's dad, a pastor. You see, the enemy is crafty. And sometimes to the shame of the church, the church helps the enemy because we hate. We don't love. You see, I'm speaking to largely a a sanctuary full of believers. In the last month, I've had at least half a dozen professed homosexuals in my office. And I've had some incredible conversations But I've looked every one of them in the eye and said, you know God's not okay with this, right? Why? Because I love them. It's not all right that you stay in your sin. And whether you see it now or you don't see it now, your lifestyle is sin. I'm not judging you. The Bible clearly says you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You can keep the sin if you want but you can't keep Christ and keep the sin. You've been saved from it. You've been set free from that bondage. The Bible specifically condemns that kind of homosexual behavior. What you're telling me you're doing, God says you can't. 
But let me tell you something. I say the same thing to the fornicating couples. I say the same thing to the drunks. I say the same thing to the adulterers. I say the same thing to the bitter, hateful people. I say the same thing to the violent people. I say the same thing to the people who can't tell the truth. You can't keep your sin and think you're okay with God. The Bible says you can't. Me as a fellow human being, a member of the human race, a fellow sinner that's had the grace of God applied to to his life, I, I wish that were different. You know, it's okay for us to empathize and sympathize with people's struggles. Amen? It should be. You should be empathizing and sympathizing because such were some of you. But you were washed. You see, what the Bible is actually saying here is we used to be good at sin. But the church is a hospital. Can I tell you the church is a hospital? The church is a hospital. It's filled with very sick, broken people. And some people are sicker than others. And some people are more well than others. And everything in between. But there's not a single person in here who's totally well. One day we're going to be completely healed. We're going to be home with Jesus. Some of us are a lot further along that path of healing. Our poor dog had four tumors. Lonnie had... We took her in, and she had all these tumors pulled out of her, and it's like she's got like three of the surgery spots are healed up, and they look pretty, but she's got one left. It's like, oh, every time I see it, it's like, oh, my heart breaks. I look at her tail. If you know anything about Labradors, if you hold their tail down, they die. They're they're like, they, they like have to wag their tail. And so she wags her, splits her stitches open. It's like, Lonnie, don't do that. Sometimes I feel like that's how I talk to people. Don't do that. God loves you. I love you. That's got to hurt. That does hurt. Look what it's doing to you. Look at that hole in your tail. Look at that hole in your heart. Look at that pain that you're enduring. God doesn't want that for you, God wants you healed. God wants you well. He wants you on the road that he has established for you. And so Paul says, that's what you used to be there in verse 11. And such were. And that was. I was. You are. We are. All of us used to be you see what he's saying? All of us, all of us were like that. There's not one person in here that's outside of that category. You were and such were some of you. And I am and such were some of you. Every believer was an as such at one time. So we of all people should be monumentally compassionate. Compassionate. 
That's why when those fools were standing out on the corner 18 months ago from Westboro Baptist Church and picketing and, you know, I had the pleasure of being called the Antichrist and all of that. And they had their signs. And I'm going to say something that I would not normally say, but they had many of their normal signs that God hates fags. God doesn't hate anyone. He hates sin because sin separates us from him. And because we're the ones doing the sin, he has to punish the sin, but he does not hate sinners. He loves sinners. That's why Jesus came and died, is because he loves sinners. It's the whole purpose of the cross, is he loves sinful mankind. That's why it says, and such were some of you. That's my old life. That's what I used to be. All brothers and sisters. We need to take the truth into the world because it's the truth that sets men free. It is not lying to them. It's not capitulating. It's not trying to change what the word says because social science has said. Can I tell you, there's, we have an awful lot of laws that are not okay with God. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's okay with God. And here's what happens. Every time we make something legal that's not okay with God, there's collateral damage in people's lives because they think because it's legal, it's got to be okay with God. It's the reason you need to get to the voting booth and vote your Christian values. And you need to vote out people that vote for godless laws. You have that power. You see, so Paul lists stealing and greed and drunkenness and slander. Now, praise God. If you're here and you've slandered somebody, but you've received the grace of God, you're still going to heaven. But you can't keep slandering. Let me be clear. You can't keep slandering people and expect that you're going to heaven. If slandering doesn't bother you, you should have no expectation of going to heaven. Am I clear? If you are a liar, habitually, unrepentantly, you don't care, and you walk around and nothing comes out of your mouth but lies, please hear me well, you should have no expectation of going to heaven. But now let me give you the good side. If it bothers you, grace is yours. Holy Spirit's in you. Holy Spirit's residing in you. It's piercing your heart going, he's talking to you. It's like, Jeffrey, I don't know what your full name is, but when I'm in trouble, God speaks to me, Jeffrey. And if I've been really bad, it's Jeffrey S. Gill. Get in here. You have to have God's expectation. We as believers have been named by Christ We hold his name high. We keep his standard. We do not get to grab heaven and bring it down to earth. We get drug up to heaven. That's what your Bible says. It's what it teaches cover to cover. Nowhere does it say that God changes to be like us. We're supposed to be changed to be like him. And to that end, grace is the only answer for any of us. Amen?
Grace is the answer for the covetous person. Grace is the answer for the liar. Grace is the answer for the drunk. Grace is the answer for the homosexual. And the idolater, the male prostitute, the fornicator, the deeply bittered person. Let me really stick one right in where it's going to hurt the completely unforgiving person. That's what your Bible says. So if you come to me and say, well, I just, I'm going to be unforgiving for the rest of my life, I'm going to look right at you and go, you have no guarantee of heaven. Just prepare yourself. That's what's going to come out of my mouth. You should have no expectation of being in heaven with the Lord who forgave you all your sins if you will not forgive your brother who has sinned against you. Why? Because that's exactly what the Bible says. You see, when you're honest and you take the Bible for what it says and you apply it equally across all of the various things that the Bible says we should be or should not be, you're going to be really good because it's going to change you. And the Holy Spirit's going to be working in you to accomplish his pleasure. It's going to be working in you to transform you into the beautiful image of Jesus. But God will not leave you in your sin. He will not leave you alone in your sin. He will not allow you to have a moment's peace in your sin. He loves you too much for that. So when someone comes to you and says, I was born a liar, you can say, no, that's not true. When someone comes to you and says, I was born a thief, you can say, no, that's not true. When someone comes and says, I, I, I'm genetically a drunk, no, that's not true. Because the Bible says it's not true. And the scientific medical evidence backs up exactly what your Bible says. It's not true. He who the Son is set free is free indeed. And that's sin of any flavor and of every kind. There's hope for everyone. Anyone who will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Let's stand. We'll pray together. I'm going to have the prayer team come back up. And I realize we're running a little late, but I wanted to finish this. Thank you for your patience. Prayer team comes up. Maybe you, you're struggling with something. Maybe, maybe something touched you. And you, you've been struggling with some area of sin. And maybe you don't feel like you've ever repented. And you want to repent. Maybe you've never invited Christ into your life. But you want to do that right now. Today's the day of salvation for you. Please come. Invite Christ into your life. He can, he can take that burden that you're carrying right now. It's too heavy for you. It's not too heavy for him. Father, thank you tonight that for each one of us, Lord, in those areas that we struggle in, the only hope is your amazing grace, your forgiveness. Lord, that we would be made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. God, we thank you that that's a free gift to all who would ask. And I would pray if there's anyone tonight has not received that gift of grace.
by believing in you, Jesus, God's own son, who died in our place on Calvary's cross and laid in a grave and was raised three days later, that stands right now as our advocate in heaven. Lord, I pray that that person would receive the gift of faith to believe tonight. And God, for those that are struggling with some area of sin, or maybe they came tonight and they think they can keep their bitterness or their anger or their hatred, their unforgiveness, or maybe someone here tonight is a homosexual. They've walked in that lifestyle, but you can set them free. Lord, we believe in this house in conversion therapy because you converted us from liars and drunks and thieves, drug addicts. We've all been converted. We've been made saints by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for that gift. Lord, bless your people. Make us strong, Lord, that we would battle in these last days. We pray these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, the name that's above every name, Jesus. Amen.